In this episode, David Harushian, VP of Finance at Qualified, talks about taking the leap from advisory to working in-house, shares lessons from Qualified's latest financing round, and discloses the technology his team has prioritised to help scale finance. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Dave, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Dave, I'd love to understand and, and start with your, your current role as VP of Finance at Qualified. So this is your first time leading finance in-house, shall we say, because you came from an investment uh, banking background uh, and a corporate development background. So how has that experience been leading a finance function in-house versus actually your your career up until today in, in the more advisory investment banking world? I would say... Definitely was very nervous initially, looking at a lot of uncertainty. As you mentioned, given my previous background with banking and corporate development, I used to see companies at almost their end stage when they are ready to be sold or acquired or potentially explore an IPO. So I got to see where they are in their life cycle at the end stage, but never been through the process of taking them through the beginning in-house and uh, going there. I would say the biggest difference is a lot more operational and holistic involvement within the organization. So I get to, even though my title is VP of Finance, I get to participate in every single aspect of operational planning and setting targets and work with the senior executives across all departments to understand what their needs are and how that translates into the financial needs. It's been a journey of mostly understanding what they need and being strategic partners for them to hit uh, hit their targets and achieve their goals. And so then when you were considering Obviously, your next move and you were in and I was looking at that position. So you were you were in corporate development and then then deciding whether actually to join qualified. And of course, at first that was in a finance and ops role, but eventually led to you being becoming VP of finance. Were there any debates about like whether that was the right role for you or whether you should you should stick in a more strategic M&A type environment? Not so much of a debate. I think it was just kind of a natural progression. I am still working and leading our biz ops team, which is our kind of a small, we call it a SWAT team of data scientists and multidisciplinary individuals that are able to take data and come up with really great insights for various departments in the company. So from that perspective, biz ops and finance kind of go hand to hand, so to speak. And we're able to kind of really add value to a lot of other departments. Given my uh, previous background and kind of exploring this, it it just kind of shows a difference in that uh, there is more operational rigor and strategic partnership involved in this role rather than what I used to do in corporate development. And what were the biggest surprises that you encountered coming into that role again away from the, the advisory position that you'd been in previously? I would say most of the surprises were pleasant surprises. Uh, you, uh, a lot of times in an, in an advisory role, you, you only get to see the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, and you get to advise on just this small sliver of the whole history of the company, which is the transaction. Whereas here, you're working in the trenches day to day and trying to understand 
trying to help the executives plan things, uh, trying to properly incentivize employees. There's a lot more involvement there. There's a lot more feeling essential. So it's all been pleasant surprises and a lot of learning as well. With that experience coming in-house and you said it was it was mostly pleasant surprises, the, the first role you took on was in finance and operations, which was very different to the M&A and corporate development that you'd been in before. What was it like seeing that part of finance versus the, the deal-making side or even the part that tends to be very external focused on investors and the market and so forth? I think the biggest difference I noticed was... Uh, in the in-house side of things, right? You're focused on the long term. You know, that as a, you you are a shareholder of a company. You are focused on the long term. You want to kind of be there every step of the way, and every there is a, there are set targets or goals that we want to achieve, and you kind of get to see the evolution of the company as they grow. But you also have your operational input and impact on the company. On the advisory side, there's just a few months where you get to participate in and make sure that the shareholders get the greatest value that they require. And that is your only target. Whereas uh, on the in-house side, there are a lot more stakeholders, a lot more involvement, a lot more pressure, but a lot more rewards (laughs) as well. So... Yeah, I, I can imagine that. And then you, in that experience since joining Qualified, of course, you have gone through at least one, if not two, funding rounds. So one uh, huge one uh, earlier this year, which was just before you took on your new role. What was that experience like? Uh, so I joined Qualified right when they were in the seed stage and re- they had just raised their Series A. And then I participated and I helped lead the Series B raise as well. It has been uh, an incredible experience. We had since quadrupled and prior to that we had tripled and we still have plans to continue growing, tripling, uh, if not more. So from a fundraising perspective, two things that were really helping us. Number one, the, the market conditions were quite good. Number two, the company performance spoke for itself. We were able to really understand who we should raise our next round from, who would be our best strategic partners setting us up for growth going forward. That process, similar to what I used to do with corporate development or investment banking, does involve some due diligence and preparation and making sure everything is in place for for the due diligence process for investments, uh, for investors. But it was uh, a very seamless, very, very enjoyable process for us, to be honest. It went quite quick. I think a lot of that is attributed to the fact that the company has grown so much that all the metrics look are looking uh, very investable. If, if the business is that good, it'll sell itself pretty it's, much. Exactly. Very, you know, having a banking background, I had to do very little selling. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, so yeah. then now that you've seen that on both sides of the fence, so you've been on the advisory investment banking side where you've worked on, on a, a crop with a, a number of clients and you've now been in-house leading finance and, and signing the deal. What lessons have you learned from seeing it on both sides and what advice would you have for others going through that process? I would say the biggest thing that I was cognizant of when I was um, working on preparing our materials for the raise was have your own due diligence done and have your own check of your own materials done first before opening it up to other investors. It is extremely imperative, in my view, to have your main key performance indicators, your KPIs that would drive the value of the business be vetted 
be very accurate and have a lot of supporting data to show where you are getting those numbers from. What I've seen previously is that if you are going to market and shopping around a deal to investors and those numbers aren't concrete and there isn't enough proof behind it or showing how you got your numbers, then investors sort of lose confidence a little bit in the quality of the rest of the numbers. So that is my biggest advice that I've always given to others as well, is just make sure that your numbers are accurate and that you account from them in sort of an industry standard way and be more on the conservative side to show, to leave room for upside. And so they're looking for, well, in a way, investors are looking for a single chink in the armor. And if they find it, it can undermine everything else. Correct. Yes, because uh, obviously you are showing historical performance and then you are showing a future forecast to get the investors to not only be excited, but also do you want them to believe that you're going to achieve your forecasted numbers? So if if the way you're showing your historical numbers and some of them are as according to accounting standards, so there's not much potentially you can do with that. However, there are a lot of SaaS metrics that different companies account differently for. So you want to make sure that at least your historical key performance indicating numbers are accounted for accurately and the investors understand the methodology behind it so that they can then be confident in understanding what you're going to do in, in the future as well. Many CFOs that have spoken about raising funds, and we've had several on the, on the podcast, and there have been some incredible raises this year and last year. They spoke about the challenge of when you're going into fundraising, you often want to show steady, metronomic, consistent growth across all cohorts that is, where the trend is almost unquestionable. And so any extrapolation into the future is pretty obvious. Whereas with COVID and a pandemic in the rearview mirror, or in some cases actually still very present, it's really hard to do that. And it doesn't necessarily mean the business is poor or it doesn't mean that the product doesn't have product market fit. It just means there's a huge amount of uncertainty out there in the economy. Is that a challenge that that you faced too in that last process? And if so, how did you handle it? Certainly, COVID was very scary for us, given the nature of our business and that we're a B2B and we want the transactions to be done on the website. To some degree, COVID was, I don't want to say helpful, but more transactions began facilitating or initiating on the website. So it was more of a general macro uncertainty that we were scared of and concerned about in terms of the fundraising processes, will will investors continue investing and supporting these growing companies? So I think during a fundraising process, uh, whether it's a, a macro environmental I- issue with the economy or COVID driving it, or you may not have hit product market fit just yet, most sophisticated investors would understand that. And they would look at it as a one-time event as long as the fundamentals of the business that they're looking for are still there. And obviously, when in B2B SaaS, there are certain fundamentals that uh, are across the board easy to compare and benchmark against as well. So yes, it was, uh, it was a concern, but given the sophistication of our investors, we were able to craft a story and show that this period is reflective of COVID or some sort of a macroeconomic condition for us. And then you get into the point of it, you mentioned the market being very favourable, which is uh, which is exactly the case for most tech companies. 
but of course there are risks with taking always the highest valuation and purely the highest valuation. So how did you approach that dance? Did you, do you think it's just right to go for the best terms, the highest valuation, or are there other factors that you felt were important? For us, strategic partnerships with our investors was probably the most important aspect that we were going for rather than the highest valuation number. When you find the right investor who understands your business, they are able to also give you the right valuation as well. It kind of falls in place. For a growing company that is showing tripling and quadrupling of historical performance and is forecasting tripling and quadrupling again, there is always the question of showing evidence for product market fit and then how to craft your go-to-market strategy in order to actually achieve that. And that is when a, a really good key investors, strategic investors would be quite helpful. And uh, from that degree, we're very, very lucky to have really cool investors who have had a lot of industry background and experience that they can help us with, with our go-to-market. Yeah. And this is a more a broader point on board. So investor relations is, is a critical role for any finance leader. And, and there's there's an artistry to it. And you mentioned about setting expectations or you alluded to that. When it comes to that stage where you're, you're bringing in venture capital um, or typically venture capital investors, many of those investors are professional investors, but they've never scaled and operated a company. So they know the market, they come to life when it comes to the fundraising and they can provide huge value then. But when it comes to company strategy or scaling the company, they've not always got that direct experience or expertise. So how how do you then, again, select and partner with the right investors that can help you not only come fundraising, but with growing the company? We've had a little bit of, a, I would say, luck lucky situation where our our partners who have invested in us, they have had a very, very relevant industry experience. So they really do understand from their previous past entrepreneurial or operational experience, but also have adding to it their current investing experience, what works and what has, what has worked. We've kind of definitely have our interesting board discussions where they're very strategic and we're able to kind of get the advice that we're looking for. I think a lot of it comes from also uh, asking the right questions. You know, we don't necessarily go in and say, what what should we do? We come in with uh, multiple strategies or multiple scenarios and we we try to get their perspective because they're so close to the market. They understand what has been working with, uh, with other portfolio companies that they have invested in. So we are, in a way, also positioning our questions in a way to get the best answers that would really help us run our business ourselves. And the one thing that you mentioned as well is that you, of course, have a view over all operational aspects and you're even responsible for directly reading business ops. So how have you structured and how are you managing your direct team within finance and operations? We try to kind of have a centralized structure where anything that has to do with data is living within the finance and business operations team. Because we are, like, as you mentioned, we are touching every department. We understand their specific nuanced operational needs. And we want to make sure that we have the right data that we're collecting, not just from their department, but from other departments to kind of give them the proper holistic strategic advice to hit their uh, departmental targets. Both the finance and accounting individuals on my team and the business operations individuals who are more MIT, PhD, data scientists, they work together 
and we're able to come up with the insights from kind of a organiz- on an organizational holistic level rather than specific analyses for specific departments. We found that that uh, ends up being a lot more helpful, having a centralized s- structure where there is one kind of architectural data center from which you collect all the insights and are able to do the analysis and provide uh, advice. So then you've got a centralized center of excellence for analytics, data science, and, and anything connected to reporting. Yes. Obviously, that hasn't been initially the case. We started very manual. We started with spreadsheets. But uh, ultimately, we, we try to report and centralize our data collection uh, as much as possible from a single source of truth, as you've probably heard that term mentioned multiple times. We do our best to do that. And I th- we, on top of our data science team that we have, we also kind of have additional computer scientists who are helping us with the data extraction and, and cleaning to make sure that the data that we do the analysis on is, uh, is accurate and uh, we can rely on. So it seems like quite a heavy investment in analytics at an early stage of the company. Yeah, we found that, especially at an early stage, uh, we want to make sure that uh, foundationally all the investments are done at uh, as early as possible. Because w- one of our big challenges right now is we are in what I would say hyper growth stage. Uh, you know, quadrupling and tripling, uh, we, we're hiring so many people it is imperative to make sure that operationally our systems are communicating accurately and the data is flowing accurately to the right locations uh, where we can actually then extract it and analyze it. Yes, it's a, it's a lot of investment upfront, but the insights that we come up with and the forecasting that we're able to do are a lot more accurate and we're able to kind of set more accurate targets and achieve them as well. So does that then mean that the, the, the type of profiles that you hire into your team and that you would be looking for would be typically of a more technical nature than you might find in your, in your normal or your average finance team? Yes, I think that's accurate. You know, on, on the BizOps side, uh, as mentioned, we have PhD data scientists that are helping us. And uh, even obviously finance uh, as on its own is quite analytical. So is accounting, but even with my accounting team, I always try to kind of involve them in the strategic finance aspect of things so that we have we all have an understanding of why we're doing the analysis that we're doing and what the impact is going to be uh, based on the analysis that we perform. Data scientists, that, that, that's a fascinating role because every company wants them now. There's so much demand, so little supply, and even then hiring in at the moment across so many markets is very challenged. Like in Europe, it's like cities where Soldo's headquartered, like London or even elsewhere where we've got presence. It's very, very challenging to hire certain key roles, data scientists, engineers, even salespeople. And I know in the US, it's, it's similar, whether it's the Bay Area or Austin, New York. So how do you get those top talent people from tier one universities doing, you know, PhD data scientists, how do you find them and, and then compete with the salaries that some of the big tech companies are playing because they've got almost unlimited amounts of cash? Yeah. And we do compete with, with the big tech leaders out there. And we certainly wouldn't be able to compete with just the pure cash uh, with them. In terms of the recruitment, I think a lot of it is just leveraging personal connections. Uh, I've reached out to my grad school colleagues uh, to understand uh, if there are individuals that would be looking for a specific role like this at a company where they can uh, grow into leadership roles as well. 
We also leverage our in-house employee network. It's quite imperative for a company of our size that we hire the right people and we're able to trust them. Uh, we also have access to some of our investor networks. And we, when we reach out to them for those key roles, sometimes they're able to uh, actually recommend some really, really bright individuals for us. Uh, in terms of recruitment or retaining them as, as compared to some of the large competitors that we have. A lot of times, certainly if it was just based on comp and cash, we would not necessarily be as competitive, even though we are paying competitive salary and equity packages. I would say the appeal ends up being the type of work that they would be doing. That's it. Like they, they're able to kind of be in the process and see the impact that they're doing and also grow into a leadership role that they can then build out their own team of analysts and associates that could help them out. So we are looking for people who do have a little bit of a, I want to say, emotional connection in the way that they would like to see a company go through this uh, growth stage and uh, succeed. And in many ways, it's an entrepreneurial mindset because if they if they have some, and we see this at Soldo too, that you need people who enjoy the process of making something, of building something, because many things have changed over the over the past, you know, well, two years or even a decade. But the one thing that still seems to remain the same is that people. Certain types of people feel suffocated by being a small cog in a big machine that you might be at a large tech company or a big corporate, whereas the opportunity to be in a company at the stage of qualified or sold or others, it means that you can have an outsized impact through your work. Absolutely. Mentioning the small cog in, a, in kind of a big machine, that's sort of almost a given, a standard. We do try to uh, obviously emphasize that, but go beyond that and look for individuals who are looking to solve a problem. During the interview processes, we certainly tell them that you have exposure to some of the best executives and the founders uh, within qualified. So you get to work with them right away, which is quite the difference sometimes when you're working at a large organization. But secondly, we really truly outline what the problems are. We're very transparent in letting them know what problems we're facing and how their effort would be able to assist us and achieve the, some of these solutions and get us to the next level of growth. And we find that at, when we're recruiting at the tier one top universities for that kind of talent, there's a lot of curiosity there and they do want to kind of put their skills to use to solve problems that have an impact uh, versus be in kind of a, a zone where their scope of work is limited. And it's recent research or, or a lot of recent research suggests that in the new generations that, that that desire to have an impact is increasing and that COVID has only accelerated that. Yes, at least, uh, again, we're, I, I would say we're lucky from our experience that every person that we interact with within different departments, you are able to tell that they truly care, that they're looking to solve a problem. Uh, we are a fully remote hiring company, so obviously that comes with some issues and challenges where uh, people are on different time zones and you want to make sure that you're respectful of that. But just seeing everyone working very hard past their time zones does kind of show show up as evidence that they really do care and they want to see the company succeed. And so then I wanted to go on to that actually because it's such a timely timely question. Working fully remote, what's the best and the worst of that for you, for you as a team leader at Qualified? 
was the first time for me working fully remote, you know, for the past uh, decade or so, I've always kind of gone to the office um, uh, and that camaraderie that was being created by being in the office is uh, is obviously lacking. We do have an office in San Francisco where uh, individuals who would like to go into the office, they're able to. But the way we try to kind of tackle being remote is obviously technology has really helped, you know, have being able to do Zoom meetings and have uh, a regular check-in cadence has certainly helped us out. Uh, we are investing more and planning more into team culture activities, figuring out company offsites whenever appropriate, or having virtual team trivia events or uh, anything where we can get the team together. We certainly do that. That's what I kind of try to do, at least within the my department, is uh, make sure that there is a, a regular cadence of meetings and transparency. We want to kind of make sure that everyone understands what they're doing, uh, how what they're doing is helping the company and the organization. And I try to always have kind of check-ins and conversations with my team about their personal career growth and where they'd like to see themselves grow in within the company as well. So... And what about during very intense periods, which finance has a lot of, because you have things like fundraising, which we just spoke about, but even whether it's down to things like closing the books or at the moment going through and developing budgets for the next, for the new financial year, if you're working on a calendar system, those are typically the, the types of environment where historically you would all get into a war room and you would be in there for days and weeks on end, but you can't quite do that or replicate that in the same way remotely. So how do you, how do you tackle that with your team? So we've been through a couple of those periods. I think the Series B fundraising, the due diligence around that, and obviously the closing the books. And we're constantly, as we're in this state of hyper growth, we're constantly evolving our technology stack and we're trying to make things more efficient. I think it truly just kind of comes to the, the every individual's grit and motivation. We try to replicate the same thing by having having that be virtual via Zoom meetings. You know, we're all sitting at our dining room tables uh, with the family members sometimes around or dogs being around. But uh, the mentality, one of our kind of company values is a whatever it takes attitude. And it's it certainly does end up getting reflected in those moments. Yeah, that's why I think whatever it takes has been is one of our values, so to speak. We want to make sure that we hire talent that uh, understands that there will be times that they will be contributing a lot. They're also at the same time shareholders of the company, so they're kind of working working towards a common goal. So we try to kind of uh, make sure that people are motivated. We try to kind of have company meetings on a. Um, on a more frequent basis and make sure that everything is transparently laid out for them so they understand that the work that they're doing here ends up showing up in our investor meetings and board meetings uh, and that the value that they're providing. Yeah, and and that that makes complete sense. And you mentioned the the use of technology, and so beyond video conferencing, technology is an is a is a theme that for finance is rising rapidly because sales, marketing, engineering they've been using automation and various like software providers for decades and decades, but particularly the last ten to fifteen years. Whereas in G and A, so within the world of like the COO and CFO, there's a whole raft of new solutions coming in to simplify their your lives, save time and make things easier. Are you putting some of those to work? Are you investing in technology as a team? Yes, we're certainly investing in technology as a team, especially now during this growth stage. I don't think that was necessarily the case initially 
the way I wanted to start off is number one, understand what our what our targets are, what were our executives looking for. To be honest, spreadsheets, uh, you know, Google Sheets or Excel, they still exist for a reason, <laughs> and uh, because they are very customizable, and you are able to build multiple scenarios and kind of customize them and tailor them to exactly to what the investors are looking for or the executives are looking for. And uh, having lived in those spreadsheets in my banking career, I've uh, at least have uh, good enough knowledge of build, being able to build those out without adding uh, a layer of technology just yet. Uh, so initially, we wanted to make sure that the workflows and the processes were manual, but we fully understood the processes. And then we began slowly introducing technology to automate some of those things. We've invested in kind of a spend management software, obviously being able to kind of do your expenses. Uh, we've, we've invested in multiple vendors that do that. And we do want to kind of continue building out our technology st- stack and make sure that our financial software and ERP are always up to date and reflexive of our, our growth. But initially, we wanted to start off in a manual manner so that we all understood what we're doing before we're adding something awesome and automating. So you, you felt the pain acutely before you actually removed the pain effectively. Yes, absolutely. That's probably the best way to describe it. But you end up knowing all the nuances since you're doing everything manually. I would encourage others to look into that at least for a period of time because you. it also will help you find the technology solution much better since you truly understand what you're doing and what needs to be done and then what the needs are in the next six months to a year. And you mentioned uh, the, the two or two example areas that you had been investing in were spend management and ERP. ERP is obviously the backbone of, of any company and you'll probably have to change that as you grow as well, which is immensely complex. But on the spend management front, why did you did you start there and, and implement a solution in that area? Well, we started looking into spend management after we raised our Series B. Obviously, to on a broader perspective, for a company our stage, product market fit and growth is the number one. And we wanted to always invest in that and understand that. But at a, at a certain point within a company trajectory evolution, you begin looking at bottom line metrics, like for your, your cash flow and your spend efficiency, and beginning to establish more what we call like hard budgets versus soft budgets, we don't want to restrict departments by giving them hard numbers right away uh, because it's less efficient at our stage. But we do want to begin introducing the concept of, of letting them know that we're, we're monitoring your spend. That was kind of the rationale and thought process uh, behind that. And some of the spend management technology uh, integrates really well with the financial ERP, and it really helps kind of um, make workflows more efficient. And then before, like, if you weren't going to implement that, it would have been, again, it would have been the beauty of Excel or, or Google Sheets in some type of model and then a, a whole lot of uh, late nights and chasing receipts, presumably. Yeah, certainly would have been the case. I, I it, It's not something that I haven't been uh, privy to in my past lives where, uh, you know, Excel and Google Sheets was uh, the bread and butter for us. And it still is to some degree. But yes, that's kind of uh, how we started things out. And if we had a penny for every every company that's been set up so that they could get rid of Excel or get rid of email, uh, we would be very wealthy. But they're still here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's the, <laughs> they are still here. And I'm very glad that they're still here because I put years of my life in learning how to use them. 
And so, so Dave, as we as we're drawing to a close with the episode, especially right now as we're approaching the end of 2021, it's been a tumultuous year, as was 2020. Looking ahead to 2022, how are you preparing for the coming year, especially given that we're coming out of the pandemic, fingers crossed, and you've obviously just gone through this recent round of funding and are scaling rapidly? Yeah, so we are in the process of planning for the next fiscal year. Obviously, having just quadrupled, uh, we're looking to maintain that same level of growth of to triple or to quadruple. And so we're kind of in the process of understanding what our needs are, both in terms of hiring and in terms of cash. But certainly that's kind of like what, what is our trajectory. And while we're doing that in parallel, we're looking to understand what the, what we think the market will be like uh, next year. So for now, just at least looking at the at the fundraising that has occurred, a lot of really great companies have IPO'd and a lot of them, there's been a lot of late stage investments that have occurred this year. So we think that next year, it will be a year focused on consolidations. The companies that have raised money will focus on consolidating maybe the industry a little bit. And then those that have raised money in late stage could explore an IPO. So knowing some of those market conditions we're and where we are going to be in terms of our growth, we're kind of planning to and hoping to that we can kind of achieve similar level of growth uh, in the next fiscal year as well. So 2022, the, the year of consolidation and uh, presumably a lot of marketing spent. A lot of marketing spend, a lot of uh, consolidation, barring any macroeconomic conditions, uh, the IPOs will most likely continue, especially with the, with the rise of new ways that you could IPO, like using with SPACs, et cetera. So we're kind of keeping that macroeconomic world in mind to understand what our growth needs will be and uh, how we're going to uh, hit our company goals. I think that's a, a good prediction and one wise, especially to pay attention on that. And especially I'd imagine that your experience in the public markets and in advisory world, investment banking helps you predict that and be prepared for that better than most. Certainly. Yes. We, we do have conversations with not just our investors, but also, you know, other uh, advisors and bankers just to kind of get an understanding what they think the markets will look like from a credit perspective or from VC funding perspective and, and uh, so on. So it's always nice to kind of know what's going to happen. As, as uncertain things may be, we'd like to kind of have a, a data-driven position on it. Yeah, no, I can understand. And Dave, perhaps final question then. Uh, for anyone who's an, who's working in finance, who is an aspiring VP of finance or CFO, would like to get into that position, what advice would you have for them to help them prepare for that role? So my, my background, as, as you mentioned, it's kind of more on the transactional side. Um, and I, I was able to do a little bit of entrepreneurial work. What I found to be the most helpful is really get to know your executives, learn how to communicate uh, in a concise manner, understand what the, what the specific problem sets are and the targets are and try to solve them as it pertains to the unique situation of the company uh, rather than there's a lot of advice out there and there are a lot of great case studies that should be read and understood of how some successful companies scaled and how other VPs and CFOs were able to assist in that scaling process. But ultimately, there's always unique nuances to every company. It's much better to just kind of get in the habit of understanding how to solve a problem that is unique to the company and be able to kind of build on that skill set. 
to understand exactly what needs to be done while using some of the extra case studies and historical data as, as sort of a backup. That's probably the biggest advice I can say. And the second biggest thing I would suggest is don't be afraid to fail. There's always going to be mistakes made. This is to a degree a new role for me. And I'm of an attitude that if uh, there is a mistake made, you just apologize for it and, and, and use it as a learning experience and go on, go forward. Very wise advice, Dave, for anyone listening. Uh, Dave, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's, it's been brilliant to hear some of your experiences at Qualified and, and hear your advice for others. Thank you, Ross. I really appreciate you guys having me on. You're welcome. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo the brighter way to manage business spending and and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.